The privilege of this hour is indeed a great one to permit us as the shades of evening of this Lord's Day gather about us to nonetheless give appreciation to the God who made it all and to allow us the opportunity to offer the homage and the devotion and the worship and the exaltation of His name that is ever so appropriate and right. As was mentioned earlier, we are so thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership at Pippin, the visitors who've come our way this evening. We're delighted that we each are able to gather with health and comfort in this hour and that we each can be encouraged and edified in indeed the most holy faith, 2 Peter 1, verse number 1. As I mentioned this morning, certainly appreciation to all those men who so capably and ably filled in during the time that my family and I were at that gospel meeting last week. So thankful for both Gary and Jonathan as they delivered the lessons on Sunday. The excellent job that was done for Brother Lester as he taught the Bible study class. All of it again indicating the incredible blessing that the Pippin Church enjoys with so capable and able men who are able to so readily jump to the aid and to fill in in whatever way that they might even be asked. Certainly also thankful for those who made that journey to Granville to be a part of the meeting there for a night or so. Very much thankful for your prayers, your physical support in any way that you lent any kind of contribution to the success of that gospel meeting. Tonight, as you might have noted from the reading, we'll turn our attention to another installment in that series of lessons on the book of Revelation, the 66th and final book in the Bible. And as we do that, we come tonight to chapters 10 and 11, for previously we had at least worked our way through those initial nine chapters. Here are some introductory thoughts, however, that we perhaps might do well to keep in mind as we think about this particular book. It is the only New Testament book of prophecy, and as such, it of course speaks in a very different kind of language in some of the other major sections of the New Testament. That apocalyptic language, that language that involves symbols and signs, in which truth is not presented chronologically per se in many ways, but rather symbolically shown to us in ways in which it's very vivid and very graphic. Furthermore, you might notice that as the book of Revelation is one which has occasioned no small amount of discussion through the years, it still is a challenging but yet informative book because it is in the Bible. The God of heaven presented it to us for a reason intending us to glean lessons therefrom that can encourage us and aid us in our walk even with the Master. For that reason, some initial thoughts just in review might be in order as we attempt to incredibly briefly summarize the first nine chapters. We have seen them perhaps in the following way. Chapter 1 showed to us the one whose revelation this is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the, unre the revealing, the unveiling, if you please. And as such, we learned much about this one. He's the one who loves us, the one in whose blood, of course, we're washed from our sins, and the one who is returning, and every eye shall see him. We notice that in that opening chapter, <clears throat> he walks among the lampstands, and they were told represent the church, the central figure indeed of all that is the church. We then noticed in chapters 2 and 3 some very brief letters to those seven churches. Those churches being Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those letters did offer commendations when that was in order, but it also offered rebuke when that was appropriate, reminding them that they were in need of repentance in many cases. Those that were dead needed to again revive and do the works. Those that were lukewarm needed to build a fire beneath them. 
In every case, the Lord knew their works and told them exactly what was needed. In chapters 4 and 5, we were given a glimpse because John in chapter 4 verse 1 saw a door opened in heaven. And thus, as he was able to witness or at least have an appreciation of those matters, he in fact wrote by way of description what he saw. In chapter 4, one was on the throne. This one was in fact, had a rainbow above his head, and how great and majestic he appeared. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, is the word of those four living creatures who exalted this one. However, we notice that amongst all those anthems of greatness, chapter 5 opened by bringing to our attention the fact that in his right hand was a book, a scroll sealed seven times, and there was an initial degree of sadness because no one on earth, beneath the earth, or in heaven, as far as John knew, was worthy to open it. But then one of the elders informed him not to cry, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, in fact, has become victorious and is worthy to open the seals and to loose the contents. And so it was that worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing that statement of Revelation 5.12. And then beginning in chapter 6, the Lamb began to loose the seals. Rather quickly, the first four of them were loosed. And four horses were seen and various horsemen riding them. There was the white horse, and then the red one, and then the black one, and then the pale one. As we looked at each one of them, we noticed how awful some things can be when the human family has its way with warfare. But then we notice the fifth seal in which, in a remarkable scene, we appreciated that there were saints beneath the altar, souls, if you will. And the text said they had a very penetrating question. How long, O Lord, holy and just? They were waiting for the vindication of the cause for which they had in fact died. The Lord promised them. In fact, the time shall come, but it shall yet be a while, for there will be others who shall suffer the same fate that you did. And with that, chapter 6 closes, because we saw an incredible scene of judgment, a scene in which the chapter closes with this rather haunting question, The great day of His wrath is coming. Who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand? Chapter 7 gave us the answer. For in chapter 7, we noticed that there was an interesting description. A description that appeared somewhat like this. There was 144,000, and inasmuch as they were the ones, and that innumerable number sealed in the forehead, that there was a period of waiting for that sealing to occur so that no harm would come to them. They had a degree of protection, and that's one of the central features of this book. The fact that those who rely upon the Lord... And those who commit their life to Him and those who walk faithfully in His hand are those who, despite the difficulties they may face in this life, nonetheless, ultimately victorious and triumphant shall they be. And in fact, on that occasion, that glorious day, Revelation 14, 13 says, "...that all blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them." At that point, chapters 8 and 9 came before us. We now notice that when the time came for the seventh seal to be loose, that immediately we were brought into contact with seven trumpets. And one after another, the trumpets blew, 
reminding us that the opening of this seal was a momentous event. And with the coming of it, we noticed that they reminded us in so many ways about the plagues that came on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, where therein things like hail and fire and the other matters like turning of the water to blood and making it contaminated and unuseful, all of that seemed to reappear here as God's vindictive judgment upon those who were in fact doing what they were doing to His own people. Chapter 9 closed with a rather amazing thought that helps us interpret much of that. God had given the opportunity for a time of repentance, but they did not repent. He had sounded trumpets of warning. He had made things take place which ought to have been dramatic lessons so that they would learn those lessons and from them repent. But the text says they did not do so. And for that reason, chapter 10 will open the way that we're now about to see. What takes place in these two chapters before us this evening? Might I invite you to come with me to Revelation 10. It's a rather brief chapter, but with it we note the following. This picture shows one that I had shown before. Those seven angels as they blew the seven trumpets and one by one as they were blown in chapters 8 and 9, we began to see the features that were to come from them. Chapter 10 has as its description the following. <clears throat> and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as were the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had, a, uh, and he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it. And eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, and it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And with that the curtain drops on chapter number 10. But not as though the scene is ended because chapter 11 shall take it up in many ways. But here's just a quick set of ideas that you and I might well take from us as we give thought to chapter 10. At the top is a very brief set of details of what you and I just read. Amongst that set of details, we notice a mighty angel that John saw. In verses 1 and 2, that mighty angel is described as being clothed with a cloud. And furthermore, a rainbow was upon his head. 
Isn't it amazing that his face was as the sun, his feet as pillars of fire? In chapter 2, the little book in his hand, and what's more, he had one foot upon the earth and one upon the water. Given all of that, we can perhaps immediately notice some amazing features about this angel first. It is very clearly indicated that this which is about to be portrayed, given the rainbow upon his head, given the features of his appearance that remind us so much of chapter 1, this one, you see, has the authority and power of God. He wasn't declaring that which was his thought and idea. Three of the descriptions in this particular set of verses takes us back identically to what we had seen in the opening chapter of the Revelation. Furthermore, we notice in verse 3, He cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered. The next verse reminds us that John was told something amazing. He was told to seal these things up and write them not. The fulfillment, the completion, if you please, that which was to be the action involved in this was to take place. It wasn't 2,000 years in the future. It wasn't even 1,000 years in the future. It was, in fact, to be that which would begin to take place very, very quickly. It is remarkable beyond that, verses 5 and 6 tell us that this angel that stood and the one who offered again homage and praise to God, this one is also the one who in chapter, in the closing part of verse 6, said there should be time no longer. That word time is better rendered by the word delay. No longer occasion for delay. The time for the bringing about of the judgment enrolled in these matters is now at hand. I've waited long enough. As we noted in chapter 9, they've had time to repent, but they did not do it. And now the time for delay has come to an end. Sometimes today you and I are aware of when individuals can make a statement like that. Sometimes a parent who, upon encouraging a child, perhaps rebuking a youngster a few times, said, I've told you, now the time for punishment is at hand. And in many ways, God now says, I have given opportunity for a change, and yet there has been none. No longer will there be delay. The seventh angel is now sounding, the seventh trumpet, if you please, and thus the scene is quickly going to bring to a conclusion the matter spoken of in the next verse, the mystery of God should be finished. We're given a foretaste here of the completion of, the fulfillment of, the finality of, this which was in the mind and reality of God on this occasion. So much so that John was now told, take the little book out of the angel's hand and eat it. Eat it up. Thoroughly digest it. And not only that, as you continue to prophesy, may you never forget that it will be sweet as honey to your taste, but it will make your belly bitter. Sometimes those things spoken of, inasmuch as they are related to the Word of God, they always have an air of sweetness about them because they are the Word of God. And all who have an attitude of respect to that can never underappreciate the nature of it, hopefully, but yet oftentimes in the application of it, it can be somewhat a bitter pill to swallow. For it reminds us that there are many in our world who stand aloof from the Scripture. They have not obeyed it, and often they are somewhat negligent of it, have little interest in it. And so oftentimes it is a bitter matter to you and me as well. When we see family members and others who are not interested in the church, who have little interest, if any, in the words of the Bible...
With that, the curtain closes by us noting in verse 11, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Perhaps it'd be fair to notice as the chapter closes, more than once in the Old Testament we see an image or a pattern that reminds us about this eating of a book. To you and I, they again may seem strange to eat a book. We think about eating a lot of good food, but probably it doesn't occur to us unless we're a mischievous little child to actually take pages out of a book and eat it. And yet here John was told, take it and eat it. And isn't it interesting that he had to command the angel, give it to me. And the angel also gave those orders to eat it up. Doesn't that remind us of Jeremiah 15, 16? where on that occasion the prophet of old was in fact in words somewhat similar when he, he himself said that he also had eaten it up or thoroughly digested that which God had revealed to him. Thy words were found and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. The psalmist declared in Psalm 119 verse 103, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Perhaps the one, though, that ought to come to mind the quickest would be the scene of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, taking us back to that prophet of old, the one who labored with such earnestness by the river Kibar, we find beginning in Ezekiel 2, 8, that he too was told by God himself, take and eat the book, thoroughly digest the word of God, and go and preach it, Ezekiel 3 verse 4. He was thus to take it and to use the very thing provided to him and use it with hope of touching the heart and mind of those children of Israel and lead them to better appreciate the station that they were in and how they could again be blessed as they had been before. To say all of that is to notice that chapter 10 in its brevity has in fact brought John into the scene of affairs. So often he has been a person in the audience watching these things take place as if, for instance, in a seat and there was a stage before him and he watched the various seals unloosed and he watched the various things take place in chapters 8 and 9. But now he is asked to take a part in the play, take and eat the book. And that isn't the last time he will be admonished to have a role to play. Chapter 11, in fact, he again will be commanded to do something. What was he commanded and what shall come before us as we look at this one? But first, a picture. Here's an artist's picture of that great angel that we saw beginning chapter 10 with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. You'll notice that his left foot is the one on the land, his right foot is the one on the sea. You'll notice a rainbow over him and also clothed with a cloud as also is described in verse 1 of that chapter. As this angel has the immediate appearance of greatness and the immediate appearance of having a rather powerful scene before him, this image perhaps helps us even think about that. It is to be noted amongst it that it does prepare us to look into chapter 11. This chapter has some 19 verses and I would ask that we read the first two verses first. These are the same ones that were read earlier this evening as we looked or had the Bible reading of our, of our service. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and the worshiper and, the, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, 
and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And the scene seems to switch dramatically, doesn't it? But again, John is asked to have a role to play in the continuing revelation. John was given the reed, and he was told to measure something with it. What was he to measure? Verses 1 and 2. Particularly, he was told to measure the temple and the altar and those that worship therein. So there were certain things, of course, he that was not even mentioned. The table of showbread, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, they weren't specifically mentioned, but he was told to measure the temple and the altar. But you'll notice he was, of course, told to measure also those that were therein, the human beings, those that worship. In fairness, as you give some thought to that, verse 2 goes on to describe some additional matters. It says, "...the court which is without the temple leave out." He wasn't to measure that. Furthermore, he is told why. "...for it's given unto the nations that they shall in fact tread under the holy city some forty and two months." There we have an interesting reference to time, 42 months. It'll not be the last time we shall see that interesting point in time, for in fact later in this lesson it'll also occur again, even the next verse. But for now, we might pause to again ask, might there be some light that may be shed upon this as we revisit an Old Testament scene that was very similar to it? Again, it's the book of Ezekiel to which we may turn. In the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, we are there given a description of a temple. Not the temple that Solomon built, and not the temple, in fact, that was the hallmark of the one that most resembles the, uh, resembled the tabernacle. It was, in fact, a different temple. But in that particular case, Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 4 and following, Ezekiel was told to measure he too was told to make some conclusions, ascertain some figures, and to measure something. If we could understand what was involved in Ezekiel's measurement, that might shed some light upon this scene before us in Revelation, the, the 11th chapter. In that scene of Ezekiel 40, it had to do with identification. It had to do with, again, helping to appreciate that God's people at that time were in Babylonian captivity. And as such, they needed to understand that they were, despite their current place, again, specially chosen to bring about God's will on this planet. They would, if they followed His decree, return from captivity. They would, if they continued to follow faithfully of Him, be the people through whom the Christ child and the great blessing on all the human family would come. Thus, this temple is described, and many of its features are laid forth in those nine chapters. Here, God is again telling John, measure something. And not just these inanimate objects, but the people in them, inside the worshipers. I wonder, if God were to give orders to some angel today, would Randy Bybee measure up? Would you measure up? Would we measure up to the standard of God's expectations? Would we measure to the standard of His decree as we carry out the things involved in worship or the things related to the church? May I submit that that is a very good question. And it should be one that rests on our mind as we strive always to follow His orders and do His bidding 
to the very letter of the law He has given. As you can well imagine, some observations might thus be in order, and we've already made some of them. But this measuring instrument was given by the angel to John. And might we give some thought to the following set of ideas. There again at the bottom of that slide. Those are, of course, helping us appreciate that when God speaks of measurement, He always did so with a recognition that there's a standard. We've been studying on Sunday morning about the specifics of that tabernacle. We've noted that God, in fact, stated it rather correctly in the sense that it was strict and stern. In the measurements of that temple in Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, it too was very specific. In the measurements that we read elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures, God meant what He said. And may we submit that there is a standard, of course, to which all of us must submit as well. And if a church today doesn't measure to it, just like if a church then didn't measure to it, what is it that the Lord told so many of those seven churches? To Ephesus, repent, do the first works. To Laodicea, you need to in fact find the eye all the other matters, so that you too will repent and do that which will make you not lukewarm and not cold, but rather hot. Just examples of a whole host of others that might be listed. But the point is, God's standard highlights for all of us the impressive need that's ours to never veer from it. And that first century church too needed to understand that lesson. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, that divine standard so often set before us as the Word of God is highlighted. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. If you and I desire to be complete, to be fulfilled, if you will, in the sight of the Lord, then there is but one means and mechanism. It's that one again addressed in Romans 10, 17, For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Because of all of that, it leads us to ask some additional questions beginning perhaps in verse 3 of Revelation 11. For in that verse, we have some additional description as it's given by way of some witnesses. These witnesses, these particular ones that are herein stated, I've tried to lead us to an appreciation of them. But may we not lose sight of the difficulties faced by these first century churches in a particular era and time when, of course, there was not only interest in material matters, but there was the impressiveness of the Roman power hanging over them, the impressiveness of the onslaught of difficulties from various rulers, various emperors, and various Caesars. That church needed some encouragement to be faithful. That church needed to never forget the lessons that were to be seen in the vividness of this angel, John's words to eat that book, and in the impressiveness of measuring to ever ensure that they would meet the standard of what God had affirmed. For that reason, let's note these witnesses. Beginning in verse number 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, 
that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven, and a cloud of their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. That's reading from verse 3 on through verse 14. As we give thought to the witnesses, they were the central figures of this set of verses. As you give thought to them, you might notice again some clear things said about them. First, they were to be involved in prophecy. But oddly enough, they were clothed in sackcloth. That may seem strange. One would think that maybe a prophet would be clothed in fine clothing. Maybe as often as the Old Testament had led us so to appreciate different clothing. Sackcloth is for mourning. Sackcloth is for dire times. Sackcloth is for times of grief. These prophets, as noble as they were, prophesied in sackcloth, and they did so for 1,260 days. If you take the time to calculate, assuming 30 days a month, that's exactly 42 months. Previous verse had mentioned 42 months. This verse, 1,260 days. There's great correspondence between what's being discussed here. It's not as if they're distinct and entirely different. You'll notice that these two witnesses were likened unto two olive trees as well as two candlesticks or lampstands, if you will. We well remember how important those matters were in both Old and New Testament times. Perhaps we should shed some additional light upon them in just a moment. But we notice that anyone intending to kill or to hurt these two witnesses was themselves killed by fire. And furthermore, these witnesses have the great authority and power of God to do the things they were able to do. Here's an artist's picture. You'll notice the two olive trees left and right. You'll notice the lampstands also likened unto them, or at least described along with them. And you'll notice there's also in the midst of these the great impressiveness of what they were able to accomplish as they prophesied and what they were able to bring to pass. In looking at all of that, let's look further. What else is said about them and what happened to them? First, when their prophecy is finished, we notice that the beast himself will overcome them and kill them. These two witnesses that had done so much, that apparently had been able to accomplish so great things themselves, it says in the text, were killed, but it wasn't permanent because we begin to notice immediately that their bodies are not buried. That's odd, isn't it? We appreciate the burying of those which have passed on, but in this case it wasn't so. 
Furthermore, we notice that there were great celebrations by many at the time of their death. Many were happy that these witnesses had died. But we also notice so quickly that, again, it wasn't permanent because we noticed they were resurrected. After three and a half days, up they came, and in fact, they were told, come up hither. The greatness of this resurrection, the power of what came to pass, was a remarkable thing because what they had stood for before now was to be seen that though they appeared dead for a while, though it appeared as if their cause maybe had been defeated, though it appeared perhaps that we were completely finished with these witnesses, they were nonetheless to rise and continue onward and enjoy the reward that associated with their former labor. As you give thought to all of that, might we notice, even the remnant was led to appreciate a bit about the glorification of God. Who are these witnesses? Maybe that's the question that rests to each of us. Perhaps some answer might be given as we again note there was an Old Testament passage that had something similar to this in it. It's often been noted that the Old Testament can shed such light on those matters we discover in the Revelation. It is in this instance we should revisit the fourth chapter of Zechariah. That book nestled not far from the end of the Old Testament. In Zechariah 4, though we won't read the entirety of that chapter, Zechariah is shaken, if you please, as if he's awakened out of sleep, and an angel says, What do you see, Zechariah? And Zechariah says, I see two olive trees. And as he saw the two olive trees, he is to learn a rather valuable lesson because in them he himself asks, Who are they? And the angel told him who they were. So if we might appreciate that for which they stood then, it may in fact have great meaning for who John saw and who these witnesses were in the Revelation. We learn that those two in the book of Zechariah were two impressive individuals who had the leadership as the witnesses of God's people. One of them was told to be Zerubbabel. The other was Joshua the high priest. So one was the civil leader of the people, Zerubbabel. The other was that high priest, the religious leader, if you please. And isn't it interesting that the candlesticks, the representatives on that point, were directly connected to the olive trees. Now we each understand that from a pure human standpoint, that doesn't make any sense. An olive tree is out in the field, the candlestick's in here. Humans usually had to, of course, bring the olive oil so that there would be a supply of the oil. Zechariah saw a pipe connected from the, from the olive tree to the candlestick. There was a full, ongoing, entire supply of olive oil due to the provision of God's blessing. May we submit something similar appears to have been the case in the Revelation. As we give thought to the matter of Zerubbabel, to the prophecy in Zechariah, doesn't it lead us to also notice the resurrection described in Ezekiel 37? Where there it was, those dry bones that came back together. There was a resurrection of the cause. There was a return for Israel. We also noticed a resurrection here after three and a half days. As we give thought to the matters surrounding then these witnesses, it seems then that you and I might conclude that these witnesses relate directly to the church. 
They were a part of the greatness surrounding it, and they were to, in fact, have some difficult times. And it may have appeared the church would wane into an era of great disappearance, but we noticed that it was to be resurrected. It was to return to a measure of strength and vitality. It was to revisit the greatness for which it had originally been established. And as such, perhaps this is a rather impressive way for God to remind us of Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings, God through Daniel told the world, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That church once established, though the times may be bleak and dark, and though the human family may come upon it and apparently overwhelm it, nonetheless, the prophet foretold that it would never be destroyed. It is in relation to things like that that the followers of God here in this chapter also had a tremendous blessing with that first century era, able to do many things. That was, of course, the age of miracles. But we also now appreciate that in as much as that resurrection took place, they were to again return and appreciate the glory surrounding the calling of what the church originally was given to do. In fairness to all of that, we might come near the bottom and notice that God's witnesses came to be respected even a bit more highly after that period of resurrection. Though there was many who rejoiced over their death at first, there came to be an appreciation of and acceptance of that for which they stood. Isn't that an encouraging thing? And would that not have been encouraging to those in the first century who shortly were to suffer so many things at the hands of so many rulers? Some final remarks to chapter 11 take us, of course, to the remainder of that chapter. And there at the top, the declaration, perhaps from verse 15, will be the place we'll now begin to read. Verses 15 through 19, the closing verses to chapter 11. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before the God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets and to thy saints, and them that fear thy name small and great." and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. And now, verse 15, surely one of the great verses in the Revelation. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. To an individual persecuted beneath the burden of the Romans or anyone else, to remember that Rome isn't the one in control. Washington, D.C. is not the one in control. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. Do you notice? We shouldn't look upon that as if it is a majestic future tense matter. Christ has been reigning, of course, on here the greatness of the church's throne since the second chapter of Acts. Daniel had foretold it in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. 
when the Son of Man passes through the clouds of the action of days, He shall receive a kingdom and majesty and power and glory and might. And He, of course, shall reign. And it is with regard to a thought like that one, these saints were being reminded Christ is the one who reigns. It isn't the Romans, nor is it anyone else. And isn't it true that those four and twenty elders then said, We thank thee, verse 17, praising again the one who makes all this possible. Praising again the anthem of celebration and the anthem of jubilant victory that now is to be theirs. Verse 19 closes the chapter and the scene for tonight. As it makes mention, the temple of God was opened in heaven. That temple that we've seen from Old Testament study, that temple that we have viewed from many different perspectives and angles, I would ask you to notice a few things about that temple. First of all, there was seen in His temple. Whose temple? This doesn't belong to you or me. God's temple. And furthermore, it's the ark of His testament. We know the Old Testament speaks about the ark of the covenant. But notice this is more specific than that. It's the ark of God's testament. It is the God of heaven who sits enthroned in regal royal majesty. And it is He who is well aware of what was happening to the saints then and what is happening to the saints now. And the matter that closes it, there were thunderings and voices, there were lightnings and an earthquake, and there was great hail. Often that has been indicative in the Revelation, as it was in Ezekiel, about things that foreshadow the greatness of God's judgment upon those who were worthy of such. And as chapter 12 opens shortly, in our next study, we too shall find some interesting and rather amazing new visions and pictures shown to us as a pregnant woman, shown to us as a sea beast and a land beast, shown to us even in some other ways beyond that. But for tonight, by way of conclusion, by way of finishing this, might I ask you to notice the great order, the great scene of vindication described in this. Much can be stated about eating up that book, chapter number 10. Much can be stated about the scene surrounding the features that we have studied in chapter 11. Tonight, where do we, we each stand in light of the hopeful victory that is ours as Christians? I would encourage you to think seriously, even as we each ought to do about examining of ourselves. Are you and I eating up the book as well? Are you and I, as we stand up to the measurement of God, remember that Amos was in fact told in Amos 8 verse 4 about the plumb line. How do you stand up if God holds the plumb line next to your life? Are you acceptably meeting the required measurements or by some other means? Have you slipped aside? Are you a crooked wall that needs to be, in fact, made again the proper construction for His usefulness? If tonight you stand in a need for a public response to the gospel, realize that the Son of God offers an invitation always 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As He does that, this is a convenient time and it's an opportune one. Inasmuch as the response is last Lord's Day, even as there was this morning, it could be tonight's celebration for you also could occur and take place. And if we could be of assistance, why not now? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn that Brother Harold has selected. If you need to respond publicly, perhaps to ask for prayers of saints so that we could pray for your forgiveness, we'd be happy to do so. 
If you have never become a Christian, dear friend, please think about the urgency of the hour. We are not promised the next hour of life. None of us know what shall befall the matter tomorrow. If you need to respond tonight, why not do so? The invitation is extended. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could help you do that, we'd be honored to do any of it. We would only ask you inform us in the way we could be of assistance. And to do so while together we stand and while we sing.